This is The Great Composers from member-supported Colorado Public Radio and CPR Classical. A rising star who was on the path to greatness. This seemed like the case for young Sergei Rachmaninoff in 1893, which was shaping up to be his year. He was the undisputed star of the Moscow Conservatory, having just graduated and won the conservatory's gold medal prize. Yeah, and just to be clear, this wasn't just like first place in his class. I mean, Rachmaninoff was only the third person to ever receive the Moscow Conservatory's gold medal. So this was a big deal. And Rachmaninoff is writing music like this, the Polichinelle from Rousseau de Fantasy. the backing of Russia's most famous composer. That famous Russian composer who was bolstering Rachmaninoff's career was none other than the Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky. He encouraged Rachmaninoff as a student, he promoted his career, and actually really became close with Rachmaninoff. I would dare to say even almost like a surrogate father figure to Rachmaninoff, certainly a role model. I mean, this is a story about an elder composer putting a younger composer on the right path. And that is just what Rachmaninoff needed. Welcome to episode two of our Great Composers series, Sergei Rachmaninoff's biography from his point of view from CPR Classical and Colorado Public Radio. I'm host Carla Walker with conductor Scott O'Neill in the CPR Performance Studio. And we begin this episode with this pivotal moment in Rachmaninoff's life. Scott, in order to understand why Tchaikovsky's influence was so crucial to Rachmaninoff, we have to go back to Rachmaninoff's childhood. Now, Rachmaninoff had a father. Yeah, but not the father he needed. Mm. Today, we would frankly call him a deadbeat dad. Rachmaninoff's mother, on the other hand, was beautiful, intelligent, the daughter of a wealthy Russian general who gave them five estates as a dowry. Wow, he hit the jackpot. Yeah, but then he blew it. In Rachmaninoff's own words, his father was a compulsive gambler, a compulsive liar, and a skirt chaser. He wasted the family's fortunes, and they had to sell four of the five estates just to make ends meet. And then... Rachmaninoff's father eventually abandoned the family altogether when Rachmaninoff was 10 years old. Yeah, and from about the age of 10 to 13, without a strong father figure, Rachmaninoff was a bit rudderless. He was talented. No one doubted that. But he was literally on the verge of failing out of the St. Petersburg Conservatory. I mean, let's face it. Here's one of their most talented prodigies, and he's about to fail out? And here's where we see the first intervention in Rachmaninoff's life. And what ends up being a persistent theme in this story where someone sees how talented Rachmaninoff is, but then sees him floundering. And so they intervene to change the trajectory of his future. In this case, it was his cousin, Alexander Solotti, who was an older, internationally known concert pianist. So Solotti steps in and insists Rachmaninoff leave St. Petersburg, where he's failing, and go to the Moscow Conservatory. Isn't that sort of like switching sports teams? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, there was more than just a friendly rivalry between these two conservatories. And that switch from St. Petersburg, well, that may come back to haunt him. 
And when I say may come back to haunt him, I mean it will. That sounds like a good story, and we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, for now, Rachmaninoff's cousin, Alexander Solotti, saw Rachmaninoff's talents going down the tubes, and he stepped in and took charge. He sent Rachmaninoff to study and live with his old piano teacher, a strict disciplinarian. He was clearly saying to Rachmaninoff, no more messing around. Get serious. Grow up and make it work. And that's the first intervention. Not long after, it's in Moscow that Rachmaninoff meets Tchaikovsky, who's teaching at the conservatory. Tchaikovsky, composer of the 1812 Overture, March Slav, The Great Ballet, Sleeping Beauty, Nutcracker, and the one we're listening to, Swan Lake. Scott, it must have been awe-inspiring for Rachmaninoff to meet Tchaikovsky. Yeah, when I try to imagine it from his perspective, I mean, what more could a young composer hope for, right? I mean, not only did he meet Tchaikovsky, but Tchaikovsky became a mentor and an advocate for Rachmaninoff. He truly nurtured his progress. I mean, how unusual is that? Most of us, that kind of thing doesn't happen to us. Yeah, so lucky. One thing that's incredible to me is is just how effusive Tchaikovsky was in his praise for Rachmaninoff. Huh. So one of the stories... Uh, Rachmaninoff needs to play one of his compositions so he can get a grade from Tchaikovsky. And Tchaikovsky, according to the rules of the Moscow Conservatory, is allowed to give a one to five, five being the best. And if he really likes it, he could give it a plus. Well, Tchaikovsky had already given him a five, but when he heard Rachmaninoff play this song without words, While he's still playing, Tchaikovsky walks across the room and takes out the grade sheet, and Rachmaninoff's thinking, oh no, what what is he doing? (laughs) Well, he'd put a plus not just to the right of the five, but he put one above it, below it, and in front of it. So it was like a five plus, 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 plus. (laughs) I mean, how cool is that to have Tchaikovsky in your corner? No doubt. But Tchaikovsky's support went beyond the classroom. I mean, Tchaikovsky made sure to be in the audience when Rachmaninoff's pieces were performed. And not only would he applaud, but like he would lean out of his box just to make sure that everyone would see him applauding. I can just imagine it. I mean, Tchaikovsky's not a big guy, but I can just imagine <laughs> him like arms outstretched, making sure everyone saw him. Tchaikovsky was definitely giving Rachmaninoff his, a very public stamp of approval. But I think what impresses me most about their relationship was just how warm and friendly Tchaikovsky's generous Mm. offers were to help promote Rachmaninoff's career. I mean, here's Tchaikovsky, internationally famous composer, right? Traveling the world with his compositions, and he asks Rachmaninoff, would you object to my pairing your opera with mine? (laughs) Even (laughs) Rachmaninoff laughed, would I object? Well, here's a little bit from that opera, Aleko. The overture from Rachmaninoff's opera Aleko that Tchaikovsky had asked to program. Yeah, just think, 
What a boost to Rachmaninoff's career it would have been. But then, a totally unforeseen tragedy strikes. Russia's most famous composer dies unexpectedly, and the shockwaves are enormous. It was a catastrophe. I mean, just when Tchaikovsky was about to help launch Rachmaninoff's international fame, he's just gone. Unexpectedly and inexplicably. I mean, Rachmaninoff was bewildered, crushed by the loss of his champion. He just couldn't make sense of it. I mean, just think, nine days before his sudden death, Tchaikovsky was conducting the premiere of his Sixth Symphony. Tchaikovsky said his Sixth Symphony was, quote, the best thing I ever composed or shall compose. But then, nine days later, a seemingly healthy 53-year-old Tchaikovsky, gone. Yeah, rumors immediately began to swirl about the cause of death. I mean, the official reason that was given was cholera from drinking water, but mm -hmm. everyone wondered, was that it? Maybe was it death by suicide? Some say the way he ends his Sixth Symphony is like a farewell. It's devastating. Just where you normally expect this heroic ending, it's almost as if it recedes into this deep, dark shadow. And then you match that with the fact that just nine days after its premiere, Tchaikovsky suddenly dies? Yeah, everybody was shocked at the time, but Rachmaninoff, he was shattered. I mean, for all the rumors, all he knew was, my hero, my father figure just left me, and now I don't know what to do next. That grief began pouring out of him in the only way that he knew how to deal with it, in the form of music. Yeah, that very day, he began writing his personal tribute to Tchaikovsky, his elegiac trio number two. Some of the elegiac trio number two by Rachmaninoff, the piece that he wrote as a tribute to his beloved mentor and friend, Peter Tchaikovsky. Scott, it's no accident that Rachmaninoff chose to write an elegiac trio as a tribute to his mentor. Yeah, it's actually pretty symbolic because when Tchaikovsky's mentor, Nikolai Rubinstein, had died 11 years before that, what did Tchaikovsky write to honor him? An elegiac trio. Um, so let me play a little, a little bit of Rachmaninoff's for you. It starts with this descending four line. But that turns out just to be the accompaniment for a long lyrical melody in the violin and cello. like a song without words for violin and cello. Well, explain that song without words. 
Well, the term was originally used by Mendelssohn, and it basically refers to an instrumental piece with a very lyrical, singable melody, often written for amateurs to play at home. But in the pantheon of composers who could write lyrical, singable melodies, I think Rachmaninoff may be the absolute greatest. Just listen to this. So, Scott, explain why this song without words is a tribute to Tchaikovsky. Well, it's something they shared. I mean, Tchaikovsky was known for the very same thing. Like in his Fifth Symphony, he writes this melody for horn, but this could easily be written for a singer to sing. This kind of singable melody is exactly what Rachmaninoff is doing in his elegiac trio, but that four-note idea that accompanied the singable melody, it comes back at the very end of the piece in the third movement, but now he really ratchets up the intensity. We get it again and again, he just won't let it go. Beethovenian in the way he just latches onto it. And it made me think, you know, four descending notes. Where have I heard that before? Oh, wait, I know. <laughs> Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony, the last movement, uses four descending notes as its main idea. You're going to have to help me. I don't hear it. Right, so those main four notes sound very different from Rachmaninoff's. But if you listen to the echo... That shape is exactly the same as Rachmaninoff's. Yeah, now I hear it. And by the end of the piece, that shape becomes the dominant voice. So, Scott, just as Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky shared a love of lyrical songs without words, Tchaikovsky's final piece and Rachmaninoff's tribute to him share these four notes, the shape of these four notes. Right. I mean, it's a way for Rachmaninoff to honor his role model and champion. But, Scott, we know that Rachmaninoff missed the premiere of Tchaikovsky's symphony. 
So how did Rachmaninoff know about this four-note theme? Well, we don't know the details. And I mean, what were his intentions? Was he trying to allude to these four notes? We don't know. But what we do know is that Rachmaninoff was intimately familiar with Tchaikovsky's music because they would play their solo and orchestral works for each other very often before any public performances. Well, how would they do that? How do they play their symphonic works for each other? Do they play at the piano? Yeah, they got together in small groups of students and composers. They played symphonies, tone poems, ballets, all at the piano. In fact, Tchaikovsky entrusted Rachmaninoff to create forehand piano arrangements of his symphonies and ballets for publication. Like an apprentice. Yeah, well, like a very close, loving apprentice who needed the guidance of a master. And that is such a key point. Rachmaninoff did need the guidance of a master, and so Tchaikovsky's death was more than just the loss of a beloved friend for Rachmaninoff. It was like he lost his co-pilot. Yeah, again, for me, trying to see this from Rachmaninoff's perspective, it's like, okay, I admit I was floundering back in St. Petersburg, but I've righted my path now. Moscow is my home. I've got support here. Tchaikovsky, my idol, is guiding me and promoting my career. Heck, he's even promised to program my works on his concerts. I see the path forward. I can do this. suddenly it was all just gone. I don't see the path forward anymore. I don't know what to do next. He's lost the champion that he so desperately needs. This is an important point about Rachmaninoff that we will see throughout his life. He needs that person behind him, pushing, encouraging, pointing him in the right direction. Because without it, he's lost, just like he was lost when he was 13 and failing out of the St. Petersburg Conservatory. Yeah, he had found the lighthouse to guide him in Tchaikovsky, but Tchaikovsky's death left him mentorless. But it also left him exposed to the venom of the traditionalists based back in St. Petersburg. What do you mean? Well, Tchaikovsky was the leader of this more European style, and Rachmaninoff had clearly aligned himself with it. And when the traditionalists wanted to attack this European school of thought based in Moscow, Tchaikovsky was the prime target. But now that he's gone, the bullseye was now squarely on Rachmaninoff. Hmm. Remember how I mentioned that Rachmaninoff switching teams from St. Petersburg to Moscow might come back to haunt him? Mm-hmm. Well, it's about to. And we'll have more on that next time in our next episode of the Great Composer Series on Rachmaninoff from Colorado Public Radio and CPR Classical from the Performance Studio. I'm host Carla Walker. I'm Scott O'Neill. Thanks for listening. Thank you to CPR's contributing members for making this podcast possible. Learn about membership at CPR.org.